Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we collate weird and wonderful science from your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Tom Solston from Digital Rights Watch talks about human rights issues and the 2021 Australian Census. But first up, here's news of COVID-causing cognitive deficits. COVID Cognitive Correlates Researchers from Imperial College London administered an intelligence test to over 81,000 people and found that people who'd recovered from COVID-19 all suffered significant cognitive problems even when they were over all their other symptoms. The researchers gave them tests of attention, working memory, problem solving and emotional processing. The more severe their COVID infection the more severe people's cognitive problems were. The team explained in their paper that the battery of tests should not be considered an IQ test in the classic sense, but instead is intended to differentiate aspects of cognitive ability on a finer grain. They controlled for socio-demographic, economic, vocational and lifestyle variables by asking extra questions. The same team have previously partnered with the BBC for a show called The Great British Intelligence Test, which started in 2019. During May 2020, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the questionnaire was extended to include items about the direct and indirect impact of the virus, along with questions about pre-existing medical conditions and questions about depression, anxiety, insomnia, tiredness and moods. People who'd indicated that they'd suffered from COVID-19 were presented further questions about whether or not they had breathing difficulties, what happened as a consequence of those breathing difficulties, and whether there'd been a positive confirmation of a COVID-19 infection through a biological test. The study carefully did not advertise that it had a COVID-19-related questionnaire to exclude people who were concerned that their illness had reduced their cognitive functions to avoid bias. Out of over 81,000 people, 12,500 people had suffered a COVID-19 infection. The biggest correlation in the survey came with suffering breathing problems and suffering cognitive issues, even controlling for pre-existing conditions. For those who'd been hospitalised with COVID-19 and recovered, the people who'd been treated with a ventilator suffered more cognitive issues than the people who hadn't needed ventilation. There were associations with deficits for reasoning, planning, selective attention, spatial planning, target detection, and problem solving, as opposed to more basic working memory functions. They also found people who'd recovered from COVID-19 had significant slowing of their responses, especially those who'd been treated with ventilation. In Britain, several ministers, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and in Australia, now Defence Minister Peter Dutton 
were hospitalised with COVID-19 in 2020. The intellectual deficits aren't small. The score reduction for the people who've been hospitalised with ventilator treatment was greater than the average 10-year decline in global intellectual performance between the ages of 20 to 70. It was larger than for people who'd suffered a stroke and larger than for people who reported having learning disabilities. The team have established that infection with COVID-19 causes particular deficits with reasoning, planning and attention, compatible with those memory, concentration and language problems reported by people suffering from long COVID. The degree of cognitive loss correlated with how severe people's breathing problems were when they were sick. The next step is to find out the mechanism. While a lack of oxygen can have an effect on how well our brains work and cause damage, COVID-19 is known to directly attack the brain with inflammation and clots, which is why so many people report their first symptom is losing their sense of smell and taste. There's a real danger that in any population where COVID-19 has run out of control and infected millions of people, there will be a legacy of people suffering significant cognitive problems, separate to long COVID, for years to come. More and more children are getting infected with the Delta strain of COVID-19, and this could be a problem. The paper was titled Cognitive Deficits in People Who've Recovered from COVID-19 and was published by The Lancet's eClinical Medicine. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Census and privacy. Here's Miss Catherine Lane and Dr Roger Clark from the Australian Privacy Foundation speaking at the Senate inquiry into the 2016 census. Before the 2016 census, the Australian public generally trusted the ABS. This is no longer true for many Australians. That trust was destroyed by the ABS when it changed the purpose of the census from aggregated statistical data to personal tracking. It still remains unclear what the ABS plans to do with the personal information it has collected. But it is not a small change to propose to keep identifiable personal information about everyone in Australia. Right? This is a change that happened for this census. And I'd add that many, many people, the community, didn't understand that change at all. Names are not statistical information and cannot be compulsorily collected. The ABS refuses to provide a copy of the legal advice obtained that they relied on to tell every person in Australia that they had to compulsorily provide their name. There is already extensive legal opinion contradicting that advice. We followed a, a, just a continuous array of threats against Australians for not complying with absolutely with the census. Legislative change is required to ensure the objective of the census 
to use aggregated statistical data is what happens with the census and not tracking citizens. We want the government to acknowledge the serious and real risks of re-identification of unique identifier keys and legislate to ensure that personal information is destroyed and not used for this purpose. Something that appears to be overlooked and to have been overlooked by the ABS uh, during this current phase, wasn't overlooked uh, 15 and 20 years ago, is that the quality of the data that exists in surveys or arises from surveys is totally dependent on the public's trust in the organisation collecting the data. Once you have breaches, and it's five separate breaches of trust that the ABS perpetrated in this particular census, once you've got that and once the word gets around the community, it shows the lack of respect for privacy, it undermines that trust. So the quality of the data that you're going to get is extremely low. A second aspect of that is that the proposals from Dr Kalish are that the census will be identified each census's data will be linked to data arising from other censuses in respect of each individual in the country. And beyond that, data will be expropriated from government agencies and added into that collection, still identified to the individual. Now that data arose in many cases because of mandatory powers of government agencies and on an understanding that that data was for particular purposes. So there's been a breach of that form of trust as well. So the quality of data and the quality of or the preparedness of the public to provide data and to participate in this spirals downwards when that kind of breach of trust arises. Tom Solston is the Deputy Chair of Digital Rights Watch, a charity that looks after Australian rights on the internet. There hasn't been much in the press this year about the Australian Census coming up in August. In 2016, there were some changes made to the way the census was conducted in Australia. It was big news. People were concerned that their names and addresses would be kept, and everything was going to be linked up to all the other government databases. This led to a boycott by lots of people, and afterwards, a Senate inquiry. Yeah, the 2016 did have a lot of new things in it. Uh, new ways it's being run, a, a big push to move online that started in 2016. And yeah, changes in the way that, that data was collected and changes in the way, in the questions that were asked and the way that that data is being used, some of which are more fundamental to the operation of the census and changing what it means, and some which are more about broadening the information within it. And so some of those are pretty straightforward and and fine and easy. Some of them are much more controversial, particularly those that are about changing changing what the census means and changing the sort of work, the way it behaves. My understanding is that the purpose of the census is to get a snapshot of Australian society and for the data from that snapshot, which will be totally anonymous, to be used for evidence-based policy by government. So they work out how to allocate resources and where to allocate them and what people want and what people need. But that's different to deliberately keeping names and addresses. Yes. So you're right. That is the purpose of the census. And that is what the vast majority of the census data will be used for. And I think it's important that we recognise that this is a really important thing. It's really useful and it enables policymakers, parliamentarians, ministers government advisors, journalists, all sorts of people get to use that data to help us make good decisions about the future of the country. And so that's really important. And that is why it's important that we 
really understand the the changes that came about in the census in 2016 and get our head around what's different. And the big change, and, and it's the one that involved capturing names and addresses, was to do with starting longitudinal studies. So typically census data is collected. You get that point in time snapshot of what Australia is like in aggregate. And so each individual has a degree of anonymity because all of our data is mushed up together. But with longitudinal studies where we've had our names and our addresses recorded and kept, the ABS is able to do uh, some statistical analysis over an individual over a period of time. So they could, for example, say, well, your income was this much in the last census and it's now a bit bigger in this next census. And so we can we can draw some conclusions around that. But that that involves a fundamental shift in that you as an individual are no longer your data is no longer aggregated with everyone else. It's like you are an individual data point and that data about you is being held and stored by itself rather than alongside everyone else's. So it moves the census from being that point in time measure towards being a longitudinal study of a whole lot of individuals. And while those reports may be useful, I think there are some real questions and issues that we need to talk out around what does that mean for us as individuals? How can we ensure that we have some privacy? How can we ensure that our data is being used correctly? And how can we have confidence that that is happening? And at the moment, there are several problems with the census that mean that some of those things are in doubt. So I guess the big question is, did they change anything after the Senate inquiry and the boycott and all the controversy last time? Is this the same rules as 2016 or the the things that are a problem with privacy? Or did they fix something or make it worse? So there definitely were some things that were fixed. And I think it's worth remembering that a lot of the inquiry in the Senate was around not the privacy implications of the changes to the census, but they were around the so-called census fail, the, the fact that the servers didn't hold up. And so people tried to do an online census submission and it just did not work for them. So those technical issues have been worked on over the intervening five years. The, the engineers at the ABS have done a lot of work making their server infrastructure a lot more robust and reliable. So that feels like that's all pretty sorted. It's also fairly uncontroversial, like you would expect an organization that serves up content on the internet and consumes things over the internet does work on engineering practices that, that makes that more reliable. So that's not terribly exciting. The bigger issues surrounding privacy and the social contract between Australians and our census, those have largely not been resolved. And so a lot of the issues from the 2016 census remain in the 2021 census. Right. I thought so, because it seemed to me that at the time that all the privacy concerns were raised, I mean, one of the major issues is that the privacy laws that we have in Australia and the privacy principles that talk about you having control over what happens to your data rather than just secrecy of data came out as a response of previous pushes by the Australian Bureau of Statistics to do exactly the same thing. And this time round, my understanding was that they weren't obeying the privacy principles because they weren't allowing people to have control of their data. Yeah, I think the census, it's a very special case because it is so large in that, you know, it asks about the entire country. It is so important because it's used for steering the country. And so 
It is particularly important that it pays good heed to the privacy principles and it puts Australians in control of, of their data and that we really understand how it is operating and that it is operating in a, an ethical way. So, you know, one of the concerns in the 2016 census, which is still a concern, is that individuals' names and addresses would be held on file. I forget exactly what the expiry date, I think it might have been five years, but I'd have to check that. But there was a long expiry date. Sorry? They kept changing their minds. So I, I just went and reviewed it. So originally they said they were going to keep it forever. When people complained about that, they said, all right, five years then. And... That was it. And then I believe after the Senate inquiry, they're now saying, oh, 18 months maybe. But of course, they can change that at any point, which is what they've demonstrated. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is that is one of the reasons why we're right to have some concern is because um, that data is valuable. There are risks to holding data. So could the ABS be broken into and have that data stolen? Like It is definitely possible. And so one of the principles that we adhere to in the technology industry is that you don't really want to hold data on individuals unless you have to, like unless you've got a real need. And that's one of the privacy principles. You hold data that you have a, a need for. And so by creating this kind of giant honeypot of data, we are inviting that, that data to be lost either through you know, mistakes or through malice. It is something that I imagine a lot of hackers, domestic and foreign, would want to get their hands on. So that represents a risk. And so obviously by reducing the amount of time that that data is held for, the, the risk window is reduced, but it's not eliminated. That risk is still there. And I think one thing that's notable about technology systems and, and computer systems is that it's very easy to make copies of data. Like all computer systems on the internet are data copying machines. That is the fundamental thing that, that computers do. And so deleting data is actually quite difficult to do. And so we need to make sure that that deletion really is happening. And I think there are fair questions to be asked of, of the ABS over like, well, who is auditing this? How can we be sure that after 18 months, our names and addresses have been purged from the system and that they have not been retained either uh, by accident or by a policy change or by malice? And I, I think that's it's reasonable for us to want to know how we can be sure that the census is being run in the way that we're told it is run. Wasn't one of the big issues was not only were they keeping the names and addresses, but then the way they were proposing to obscure your name and address so it was less of a danger was that they were converting it into a software linkage key, SLK, which was a really, really simple code based on your date of birth, your gender and your name, that was so easy to reverse engineer that there's free software online and websites where you put in the code from your census form and it'll tell you your private information. Absolutely. One of the things we have learned over the last few years is just how easy it is to re-identify previously de-identified data sets. So your name and date of birth is enough for you to be identified in Australia to a very high degree of accuracy. So, you know, gender and address, not not really that necessary. It can be very straightforward to re-identify people. And that poses a, a risk to them, especially if those, yeah, those de-identified data sets are being used for all sorts of purposes, which are wider than the scope of the ABS because the data sets are determined safer to be used elsewhere. So there definitely is a risk of our individual data being re-identified after a period of time fairly straightforwardly. 
they blatantly said that one of the reasons they wanted your name and address and their software linkage key was to link it up to all of the other government databases, from your tax files to your Centrelink files to your Medicare files. And it's something the government's been wanting to do since Bob Hawke tried to introduce the Australia card. And then again, John Howard tried to put in an ID card. Have they succeeded? (laughs) So the the short answer is not for this census. The the use of other government data sets in the census is is not not where the department has wanted it to be. I remember talking in a consultation with some folks from the APS and they wanted to use power data from your home. So everyone's got a smart meter now, they know how much electricity is being consumed and they wanted to use your electricity consumption to work out you know, if your answer was correct about how many people were in the house based on a guess, based on the amount of power you were using. So that's a pretty invasive data set and also I think not a terribly accurate one because some people use far more power than others. But there is still a, a desire within government to grease the wheels of civil service by joining up data sets broadly to make, make the, the business of running the country a bit easier. And the census data has not been exempt from that. That is still a data set that many people within the public service want to be using to join up other data sets for other purposes, such as health or taxation or or whatever those might be. And that's a big change to the use of the census. That's, That's to do with the efficient running of a civil service, not to do with point in time snapshots of the Australian public. And that is well out of step with international norms on on running a census. You look at countries with better human rights protections than Australia has, and they tend to regard the census as a, like it is a precious data set that is untouchable by anyone else other than the statisticians in their, their census department. There is definitely a desire within parts of the Australian government to whittle that away here and make that that data, which is very valuable, more used across government. But that is not necessarily in the best interests of the Australian people as a whole or Australian people as individuals. It's an odd thing. I heard a representative of the Australian Bureau of Statistics being interviewed on ABC Radio, and they were asked directly about why you need the name. And they said they need it for historical reasons and to be able to connect relationships within households but I thought they ask you about the relationships in the households so they don't need the names and your name is not statistical information and collecting history the government's defunded the National Archives so I would have thought they're not very interested in non-wartime history. Yes, I mean, I can't speak to that that individual's opinion, but certainly collecting names, dates of birth and addresses lets you join up a history over time. So we can look back in 50 years time and say, this individual had, you know, this life trajectory and they, you know, they maybe moved house, they maybe had changes to their income or their marital status. And, you know, we can draw some stories out of what happened to that individual and then maybe we can aggregate those. So it's more about the history that we see in the future rather than the history we see from now. But the the question that I, I feel is still unanswered here is, well, what if I or you or an individual does not really want to share that history? Like it's it's ours. It does not belong to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It does not belong to the Australian government. Our histories belong to ourselves as individuals. And so 
I think it is fair for individuals to say, actually, I'm not comfortable sharing that. I'm not comfortable having, you know, letting the government have this quite invasive view of, of me as an individual over the, the course of my life, because that is that is quite invasive in the way that, you know, it feels much more comfortable to be part of a crowd, part of the, the big data set of that point in time snapshot. It's a very reasonable ask. And I think it's one that most Australians are very happy with. I think when you tell people, oh, the government will be monitoring you throughout the entire duration of your life and gathering statistics about just you, like just you personally, that feels a lot more creepy and a lot more worrying. And it's a lot more risky because that data can be used for you know all sorts of nefarious purposes. And we are dependent on all of the people who have access to it now and in the future to treat that data with respect. And that's a big ask. That was the first part of my interview with Tom Solston, Deputy Chair of Digital Rights Watch. Listen next week for part two, where he gets into the digital safety of our private data collected by the census and why keeping your data identified is a problem. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits, photography. 
collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.